John chapter 6. John chapter 6 this morning. John chapter 6. Again, I thank you for your prayers. Though I have a busy schedule throughout the week, my meditation on this passage of Scripture the past week has richly blessed my soul. And though that fills my heart with joy, it also fills my heart with trembling and fear, for I hope and pray that God would enable me, His grace, to be able to preach to you and in such a manner which God has revealed it unto me, which is oftentimes a hard thing to do. So I am in great need of God's Spirit. For I know in the troubling times in which we live, many people are looking for answers. They're looking to God's providence. They're looking to His sovereignty. They're looking to His wisdom and grace. I found out this last week anew, even after 40 years of being a Christian, some of our greatest comfort and strength in the most troubling times is when we stop and survey our glorious salvation in Christ. For there is such a depth of infinite wisdom and grace in God saving His people that I believe we'll never, even in eternity, come to apprehend it in its fullness. Nothing comforts the child of God more than God's saving love and grace in Christ Jesus and how He called us unto Himself. That the Father would give us unto Christ and that He would give us everlasting life and seal us with His blessed Spirit is a comfort that every true child of God finds strengthens Him in the most troubling of times. The psalmist said it best in Psalm 27.1 when he said, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? My light and my salvation. The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When we assure ourselves of God's divine and sovereign love for us in Christ Jesus, Beloved, there's nothing in this world that shall shake us. Nothing that shall make us afraid. And nothing that shall make us fear. Again, the psalmist in one sixteen said, What shall I render unto the Lord for all His benefits toward me? He answers himself by saying, I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. And this morning, that is my greatest desire, that we as God's chosen people would look deep into this cup of salvation once again, that we might call upon the name of the Lord. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 35. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. What amazing declaration. But I said unto you, he speaks to the multitude, that ye also have seen me. We need to stop and pause and think about what he just said. You've seen me. I'm getting ahead of myself, but he said, you've seen me. 
They've seen the Son of God. They've looked upon him with their eyes. They beheld the miracle of the feeding of 5,000. They were satisfied and filled with that bread. They'd seen so much of him, and yet listen to what he says, and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For, this is why I will not cast them out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me. That of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing but I should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of Him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last days. Beloved, they had just witnessed the feeding of over 5,000 people with merely five barley loaves and two small fishes. 5,000 people. That's almost the population of Coleman. And yet that which impressed them the most was not the miracle itself, for he said, you've seen the miracle, but that's not why you're seeking me. You're seeking me because you ate and were filled. They weren't impressed with the miracle. They weren't impressed that this was the literal Son of God before them. They were more impressed that they were filled. Their flesh was satisfied pleasantly from the bread and fish that he had given them. That is what they were thrilled about. That is what impressed them the most. Not the Son of God, but that pleasant satisfaction was merely temporary. For the day following in verse 26 or 22, the day following they would diligently seek out Christ in hopes that he would fill them yet again. That fulfillment was not very long. Christ had temporarily fulfilled their lust and their desires and their hungry, but it quickly vanished. Oh, beloved, do you see, do you see in this how many careless and self-centered souls like those amongst this multitude profess to have an interest in Christ, yet only that he might satisfy and fulfill their own selfish desires? They hear the promises of God. They go to church and hear it preached. They read the Word of God and they read the promises of God. And they're not impressed by He who gives the promise. They're more impressed on what He promises. And so they speak of an interest in Christ, yet they only wish to fulfill their temporary desires. Help me with my sickness, my health, my marriage, my family, my job, my home. And they seek Christ merely for the temporal blessings. Yet they seek not Christ for himself. That's why he exhorted them in verse 27, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you for him, hath, the fa hath God the Father sealed. You know, one might ask if Christ knew the multitude would not believe according to verse 36. And this is something we must ponder. 
If Christ knew that the multitude would not believe, why would he feed so many and fill them? In such a way that they would diligently seek him the following day. Why would Christ feed 5,000? Not only feed them, but fill them in such a way that it would draw them to seek out Christ yet again. Forget not we're talking or forget not we're not we're, we're talking about the Son of God who knows all things, who knows the hearts of men. Why would he feed them in such a way that they would the very next day diligently seek him out? It's amazing how God will use in his providence things to declare truths about himself and his salvation. Look over in Romans chapter 9. Very well known and also very controversial subject. Romans chapter 9. Why would Christ feed them in such a way that they would diligently seek him the very next day? Look at Romans chapter 9. We all know this passage of Scripture well, but let's read it again in the light of John 6. As it is written, chapter 9, verse 13, As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Him that willeth, him that runneth, but God showeth mercy. For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. That's why he raised Pharaoh. Follow along with this thought. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made us? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath, and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath, fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called. You see in the connection between John 6, the multitude in Romans 9, and the disciples. In John chapter 6, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. What are you saying, preacher? I'm saying God has a sovereign right to do with what he wants, with whom he wants. There was a purpose in Christ fulfilling their temporal needs. There was a divine purpose in Christ filling them in such a way that they would the very next day seek out Christ because Christ was going to use that to declare and proclaim one of the greatest truths concerning our salvation, and he would speak it to his own. You remember John chapter 9? The blind man? The disciples asked, Master, who, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Listen to this. Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be manifest in him. Nobody sinned. 
God providentially and sovereignly blinded him from birth that he might use him to manifest the mighty works of God. You see, God is sovereign. He can do anything he wants with whom he wants, how he wants. Are you following me in this? Because Christ is beginning to say a very, a very great statement, but also declare something that is God's sovereign will. God gives who he wants. God draws who he wishes. And who is man to stay at hand? Why would God feed the multitude? Why would he, for some, lead them astray? Why would he tempt them like this? No, Christ is sovereign. He uses what he wishes. And he uses these 5,000 to bring about and proclaim a truth that would be <laughs> very hated by man, despised by many, and rejected by not a few. Proverbs 16, the Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. He's done what he wants. Daniel 4.35 says it as well, And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? You know, if you look back on your own life, if <laughs> I'm like John Flavel. I love the providence of God. I love all the attributes of God, but his providence is... If you look back in God's providence in your life, how God sovereignly manipulated and changed and turned things, made events happen to bring you and I where we needed to be to meet him. He did all that so that he would speak to us, that he would draw us. God does the same thing with his multitude. He sovereignly <laughs> manifested this so that he might, listen to me, so that he might declare a truth unto his elect that they might hear it and they might embrace it and they might love it and they might enjoy it. He uses the multitude to speak to the few. That is God's sovereign desire. It's his sovereign purpose and it's a sovereign right. Sinful man would vainly seek to deny God such sovereignty. He has not the right. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice, Pharaoh said. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? Depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. Sinful man would deny God such sovereignty. <laughs> God would sovereignly do his own will in heaven and upon earth. Christ would use this great miracle and purposely fill the multitude that they might seek out Christ so that he might declare himself to be the bread of life. That's the whole purpose of this. Which cometh down from heaven to give life unto the world. Yet not all would believe, only those whom the Father giveth him. So he used the feeding of the 5,000. And think about this. It's not just merely a few. Like I said, it was more than 5,000 if you count women and children. But think about this. That's around, if not more, a little more than the population of Colton. That's a lot of people. When I look back on God's providence, how he led me on that day so many years ago, while I was yet in my sins, 
to choose not Navy, Army, or Navy, Marines, Air Force, but Army, and then by his providence lead me to Germany, where he'd providentially lead me to a church, where I would providentially hear the gospel for the first time, and the Father would draw me unto Christ and teach me the things of Christ, and Christ would save me. He manipulated and moved many things to speak to his children. So he does with the 5,000. What a blessing that is for God's people. But I said unto you, he said in verse 35, I'm the bread of life. You're wanting bread. I'm telling you, look at me. I'm the bread of life that cometh down from heaven, he said. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. What an amazing statement. Yet in that same breath he said, But I said unto you, the five thousand, that ye also have seen me and believe not. You're incapable of believing on me. Even though you've seen me. Now think about this. They've seen literally the Son of Man. They've personally witnessed and experienced one of the greatest miracles ever seen amongst men, and yet Christ said, you still do not believe. It dumbfounds me when I hear people say they don't believe in the total depravity of man. Could there be a greater evidence of the depravity of man? of the depth of sin's darkness and ignorance which engulfs the soul of every sinful man regarding the things of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. He said, you've seen all of this. You've literally seen the Son of God. Did He not tell them in John, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father? And yet they've seen all that with their own eyes, and yet they still did not believe. Christ wouldn't stop just there. He tells them why. They could not believe. Not merely because of their own disbelief, but primarily, primarily because the Father hath not led them or drew them to Christ. Let's read these verses together, verse 36 and 37. But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me all I will no wise cast out. For I am come down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Now listen to him. And this is the Father's will, the one that sends or gives men unto Christ. This is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, again the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son, they, they did see him, but they didn't see him properly, or they didn't see him accordingly. They were still dark and blinded by their ignorance which seeth the Son and believeth on Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. This is why you don't believe in me. Sure, disbelief, but primarily because the Father has not given you to me. It always has bothered me since God has revealed my eyes to the doctrines of grace, how many of those who understand and proclaim and defend and pro declare the doctrine of God's election that they could be so prideful to me. It's the most 
humbling thing I could think of that God would, for his own will, for his own choosing, for nothing of me, of my own, but simply because God chose to. No reason at all would give me, draw me unto Christ. Where is there room for pride in that? With these words, Christ would use the occasion of events to declare a divine truth which has over the years been scorned by many, hated by not a few, and rejected by countless. And beloved, even those who have come to embrace and acknowledge its divine truth often find themselves struggling to define and defend it. It is a most amazing truth. Do you not struggle to define and defend this glorious doctrine of election? It is mind-boggling. There's no room for logic here. Why would God choose whom to give unto the Son? For what reason? We know it's no merit of our own. There's nothing in us. We struggle as God's people sometimes to define it and defend it. And yet it's very true. I think here the words of Martin Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, in the German translation, is most appropriate for this truth. In our English, the fourth paragraph goes, The word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. That's nowhere near the German. The German is, Das Wort sie sollen lassen stehen, und keinen Dank dazu haben. In other words, he says, The word, leave the word alone and put no thought to it. That's what it means literally in English. They didn't translate that very good. Leave the word of God alone. See, solen das Wort stehen lassen. One kind dank, no thought, add to it. Just leave it, leave it alone. Yet even those who know it and embrace it feel they have the need to understand it fully. Paul said, I have not apprehended everything. But it's still a divine truth that enhances our love and adoration for God and Christ and His salvation in a way like none other. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Listen to that. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Though the multitude believe not these words, beloved are the words of the Good Shepherd to those who hear His voice and follow Him. He's not speaking primarily to the multitude. He said, you don't believe in me. Who's He speaking to? He's speaking to the elect of every generation. He's teaching us a valuable and wonderful lesson. He's showing us the wonders of His salvation. All that the Father giveth to me shall come to me for every generation of true believers, for, for every true believer that ever was drawn of the Father to Christ, these words are words of comfort. You know, it was not unusual for Christ to speak to His own while addressing all men. Do you know that? 
you said this is unusual. He's, there's a multitude of people here. Yeah, but I, I believe with all my heart these verses are speaking to them to whom the Father giveth the Son, whom the Father draweth unto the Son. These words are for them. It's the voice of our Good Shepherd. Christ said in John 10, My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. He's not speaking to the multitude. God in flesh, knowing that the eternal word of God will go throughout every generation, is speaking to all those whom the Father gives to the Son. And it's, it was not unusual for Christ to speak to his elect while speaking to a multitude. Remember the disciples when they were talking about parables, or the Lord was speaking parables? The disciples asked this, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? Why are you speaking to them in parables? You know what his answer was? He answered and said to them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. I'm speaking to them in parables because it's given unto you to know the, king, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. It's not given. My Father giveth unto me. You see there? You see the difference? It's not given unto them. It's given unto you. Do you understand what this book means to those who are truly called of God? It's given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. It's not given unto them. Notice that though the multitude believe not, Christ would assure all those whom the Father gives him shall surely come. He said in verse 36 to the multitude, you believe not. And it's, it's as though Christ would now turn and look down through eternity as he speaks these next words. All the Father giveth me shall come to me. And he that cometh to him, Christ, will in no wise. You know that's a double negative. He will in no wise cast out all that the Father giveth Christ shall come. Not one left behind, not one forgotten, not one who will not come, but all that the Father giveth Christ, Christ says, shall come to me. All that Christ, all the Father giveth shall come to him. Do you know, and I'm sure we've all heard that sometime in our studies since being a Christian, that not one drop of Christ's blood was spent vainly on someone who did not need it. It was spilt for all those whom God would give unto Christ. The Father is not in heaven wringing his hand because some reject Christ. No. All. The Bible says all. Again, Martin Luther, leave the word of God alone and put no thought to it. All that the Father giveth to me shall come unto me. And I will, he doubles down on it, and I will, when they come, I will in no wise, double negative, I will no wise cast them out. We're in John chapter 10. What an amazing doctrine. What amazing truths. John chapter 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. We could park there for a while and just enjoy the rest of our Sunday. My sheep hear my voice. An amazing thought. Sometimes we rush so speedily through God's Word. My sheep, my, my sheep, my. 
The Lord is my shepherd. I shall know. My sheep hear my voice. What is the voice of God going to sound like when we reach eternity? My sheep hear my voice. And I know them. You see the intimacy there? And I know them. I know them. And they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me. There it is again. Like I said last week, have you ever considered yourself a gift of the Father to the Son? That's exactly what we are. It's God's elect. We're a gift of the Father to the Son. Why me? We all have our dark past. I was telling my wife this morning, I said, it's hard to believe this month I'll be 63. I know I don't look 63. Just kidding. But when I was a teenager, I didn't think I'd live to be 21. I was that bad, and I won't go into details, but I was that bad. When your brothers and sisters make bets that you're not going to live past 21 because you're such a bad kid, that kind of tells you kind of like what my life was like. And then one day in Germany, in Scheiflenstrasse, one day of that week, I cannot pinpoint the time, the day. I know it was during that week. God taught me. I learned of the Father, and He taught me about Christ. And God gave me to His Son, and His Son washed my sins away, and His Spirit came and sealed my spirit until the day of redemption. Why? Why, oh God, why, oh God, me, and not someone else? Why? Why does it seem like the Father would choose those that are most unworthy? Did Paul say that, Corinthians? Not many wise, not many noble. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the one. <laughs> it's like God sought out the deepest, darkest sinner and said, yeah, him, her. And just suddenly went down to eternity. Him and her and him and her. And God said, I'm going to give you to my son. I'm going to learn you. I'm going to teach you. You're going to draw an eye to Christ, and he's going to purchase you with his sacrifice, with his blood, and my spirit's going to, spirit's going to seal you, and you'll live in eternity with me. I'll be your God, and you'll be my people. Why? For no other reason but Father gave us to him. My Father, which gave them me, watch this, is greater, is greater than all. Listen to that. Is greater than all. Greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father am one. My Father which gave me them is greater than all. God, God lacketh not the power or ability to draw men to Christ. That's what he's saying. He's greater than all. That's what he means. My Father who's greater than all. He, God lacketh not the power nor the ability to draw a wretched sinner to Christ. Man has no power. A preacher has no power. No man has power to draw a man out of the darkness and depths of sin and its ignorance. He's too far gone. Yet God lacked not the power. There could be no salvation unless the Father draws us out of darkness under the sun and teaches us our need of Christ. 
It's impossible. And yet such a truth causes God's children to fall on their face before God and say, Oh God, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. No other reason but the Father's drawing and giving of us unto the Son. He's greater than all. And yet Christ in our text would give us even a greater assurance if that were not enough. He would promise His own divine and sovereign protection and assurance. Watch these verses. I want you to see how He intensifies this. Stay with me a few more minutes in verse 37 of chapter 6 of John. All that the Father giveth to me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me, here's one, I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me, here's the second one, I should lose nothing. I'll not cast out, I'll lose nothing, but should raise up again the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. There's the third. I give him everlasting life. God's eternal election. Wonderful doctrine. The Father giveth. I love this word. First time I heard it in German, a brother got up and prayed. And he was talking about God's efficacious grace. And after church, I was a young Christian, went up and said, what word did you say? And he said, efficacious. I said, explain that to me. He said, well, get the dictionary. He said, I got a Noah Webster's dictionary, the old one. I looked it up and I said, oh, yes, it is efficacious. You say, what is it? Look up the dictionary. <laughs> it's efficacious. It's effectual. It works. Efficacious grace. They will come to Christ. That's conversion. And the final perseverance of the saints. I will lose nothing. I will lose. He's not going to lose nothing. You know, in all my 40 years, I have many times more than I wish to count fallen and failed God. My faults and sins have been many. And oh, I've hated them and dreaded them. Like the old hymn, I hate those sins that drew you from my breast. Christ has never forsaken me. He said, I will lose nothing. I will lose nothing. Oh, the final perseverance of the saints is a wonderful blessing. And it's so well declared within these verses. I will not cast them out. I will not lose nothing, and I will give them eternal life. No man shall pluck them out of my hands. I'm not even yourself. I'm telling you, we are so secured in Christ, there's nothing. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? All things work together to good to them who are the called. And I will raise them up at the last day. There it is. There's the final perseverance. I will raise them up at the last day. He will raise us up. Do you see why, like I said in the beginning, in, in troublous and perilous times when the world seems so dark and everything seems to be array, let us come back to the shadow of Calvary. 
And let us like to hold him, let us survey, not just look or glance, survey. Study that word survey. It looks at every little detail. Let us survey the cross. I cast all contempt upon my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Come back to Calvary. Look at your salvation in Christ. Look at God giving you unto Christ, drawing you, teaching you, learning you the things of Christ that you might have reconciliation with God and fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Let me close with these two verses. Second Peter chapter 1. This is why Peter exhorts us to this. Second Peter chapter 1. Listen closely. Why is this so important? Second Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Give diligence. To do what? To make your calling and election sure. Why? For if you do these things, you shall never fall. You shall never fall. Regardless of how dark the world gets and confused and chaotic, especially now, this world is in a mess. like I've never seen before in my 63 years of living. You want to have stability. You want to have assurance. You want to have confidence. You want to have comfort. Make your calling and action sure. You'll never fall. And then one more in Ephesians chapter 1. We looked at this earlier. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul's prayer for the believers at Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Well, let's start in verse 15. He says, Wherefore also after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention even my prayers. What's this mentioning? What's he praying? Business, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Watch this. Listen. The eyes of your understanding be enlightened that ye may know what is the hope of his calling. What is the hope of his calling? And what the riches of the glory is inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us, word who believe, according to the working of his mighty power. Oh, it took a mighty power to draw us out of sin. Power unknown to man. Let me close this out with an old hymn. I wish I, I knew the hymn. It's from John Kent. And I want you to listen to these words carefully because it really expresses it very clear and elegantly. "'Twas with an everlasting love that God his own elect embraced before he made the worlds above or earth on her huge columns placed. Long ere the sun's first brilliant ray primeval shades of darkness drove, they on his sacred bosom lay, loved with an everlasting love. Then in the glass of his decrees, Christ and his bride appeared as one, her sin by imputation his, while she in spotless splendor shone. O love, how high thy glories swell, how great, immutable, and free. Ten thousand sins as black as hell are swallowed up, O love, in thee. Two more verses. Loved when a wretch defiled with sin. At war with heaven and league with hell, a slave to every lust obscene, who living lived but to rebel. Believer, 
Here is thy, here thy comfort stands, from first to last, salvation's free. An everlasting love demands an everlasting song from thee. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast down. Amen. After that, the Jews murmured, and Christ goes even deeper. I love John 6. We're going to continue. He goes deeper. He goes into, I'm telling you, no man. He said, all shall come to me, the Father giveth me. And then he goes even deeper, more intense. No man, verse 44, come to me except the Father which has sent me, draw him, and I will raise him up. How does the Father draw them? It is written in Proverbs, they shall all be taught of God. They shall all be taught of God. Every man therefore hath heard and hath learned of the Father, cometh unto me. Do you realize that the Father taught us to come to Christ? you ever considered your salvation in that light? The Father taught us to come to Christ. That's how he drew us. He drew us with everlasting bonds of love and mercy and grace. He taught us God's sovereignty working in the midst of the darkness of our sins. That light, those who sat in darkness saw great light. What light was that? The Father teaching us. Oh, glorious salvation we have in Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, I'm so overwhelmed, Lord God, by this truth, and I pray that, Father, Lord, you'd help us to embrace it. Help us, Lord, to spend time meditating upon it, for, Father, its depths are so great. We need thy Spirit to give us understanding and enlightenment. Otherwise, these be merely but words on a page. Oh, Father, how could we ever thank you enough that you would give us unto Christ. And since we've come unto Christ, he has no wise cast us out. He'll lose none, but he'll raise us up at the last day. Oh, our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for such a perfect salvation. Help us to find peace and comfort in this divine truth in these most perilous days in which we live. Let us praise you forever for your goodness and grace and mercy that you embraced us while we were deep in our sins. The love of God was manifested that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you, dear God, for your great love, mercy, and grace. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.